This morning I'm going to begin by reading out of John chapter 19. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. And while they did these things, standing next to the cross was Jesus' mother and his sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to be his own. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit and died. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you on a very a very special day, Lord. A day unlike any other day. We come to remember what you did on the cross. Father God, we ask that this morning as we come and and remember what you did and the extravagant love that motivated it all, God, we ask that you would meet us in a personal way that you would open us up to what you have for us and that you would be worshipped, honored, and glorified in this place. Father God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, hey, welcome to to Mosaic. Welcome to Mosaic. Uh, If you are here for the first time, um, welcome. My name is Aaron. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, If you are not here for the first time, uh, your eyes do not deceive you. I am wearing a coat. Um, I couldn't pull it off all the way, though. I had to dress it down with the chucks. I just felt too far out of my element. Um, but we're excited you're here. Special thanks, too, to Al's Latrines uh, for the five gifts that they left out there for us, which is awesome, right? We're going to have our after party. Great smells wafting in. Um, but welcome. If you're here for the first time, uh, we're honored that you're here and that you join us um, on Easter. Every now and then, uh, perhaps once a year, perhaps once in a lifetime, you experience something, you hear something, you read something that leaves an indelible mark on the person you are becoming. It never really leaves you. You know, it just continues resonating and it stays there and it, sh- it begins to shape you. It never really goes away. And it changes your perception about so many things. This morning, I want to, I want to share with you what has been one of those things for me. Um, It's one of my favorites, and it goes like this. Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would come, and he would gather her leaves and make them into crowns and play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples. And they would play hide-and-go-seek. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree very much. And the tree was happy. But time went boy and the, uh, the time went by, and the boy grew older, and the tree was often alone. 
Then one day the boy came to the tree, and the tree said, Come, boy, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat apples and play in my shade and be happy. I'm too big to climb and play, said the boy. I want to buy things and have fun. I want some money. Can you give me some money? I'm sorry, said the tree, but I have no money. I have only leaves and apples. But take my apples, boy, and sell them in the city. Then you will have money, and you will be happy. And so the boy climbed up the tree and gathered her apples and carried them away. And the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time, and the tree was sad. And then one day the boy came back, and the tree literally shook with joy. And she said, come, boy, climb up, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and be happy. I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm. I want a wife. I want children, so I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house, said the tree. The forest is my house, but you may cut off my branches and build a house. Then you will be happy. And so the boy cut off her branches and carried them away to build his house. And the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time. And when he came back, the tree was so happy she could hardly speak. Come, boy, she whispered. Come and play. I am too old and sad to play, said the boy. I want a boat that will take me far away from here. Can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. Then you can sail away and be happy. And so the boy cut down her trunk, and he made a boat, and he sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. And after a very long time, the boy came back again. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are all gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing on them. I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I wish that I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I am just an old stump. I am so sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I'm very tired. Well, the tree said, straightening herself up as majestically as she could, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. I love this story. Uh, when, I was a, when I was a kid, I remember sitting on the floor of my grandparents' home on their farm in South Dakota, and I would read this story over and over. The giving tree is a beautiful modern parable, and it tells a very familiar story. When the tree surrenders everything that she has, for the boy that she loves, all of her apples, all of her branches, her trunk, everything, and has nothing left for herself. I'm reminded, I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Philippians of Jesus when he said that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. It is the story of Easter. It is the story of reckless, unstoppable, untamable, scandalous love of God. A couple thousand years ago, Jesus Christ cried out his heart, held up his hands, and poured out his blood to help us believe that he loves us, to reconcile us to God. And significantly, Jesus chose the giving tree of the cross as the demonstrative sign of his absolute love for each and every one of us. It is, as one of the early church fathers put it, the greatest act of love ever to arise from a human soul. 
Last night I was, uh, I was wrestling, honestly, I was wrestling through this message. Um, and I, I, you know, I'd spent a lot of time really processing through and sitting with the text and, and reflecting on all the things that happened up to the day of the crucifixion and immediately following. And um, last night I, I cut half the message. I, I threw it out. Um, it wasn't sitting with me. I had all these interesting, you know, little tidbits and facts and stories, all the things that really only pastors find exciting, you know. And, uh, and it hit me as I was sitting with this and as I was looking at all these different things, you know, that I was going to say, that there's really only one truth that matters. And that in the end, all of the details that I was going to share and the tidbits and all this information, it all points to the very same thing. And if we don't get it, none of the other stuff matters. And if we get it, everything changes. And so this morning, I want to have, honestly, just a frank, simple conversation, a very, very simple message. And I want you to just sit with one life-changing truth, and it's this. It is the staggering, mind-blowing truth that God loves you just as you are and not as you should be. Because nobody in this room is how they should be. I mean, do you know that? Do you know that no matter what you do, it doesn't affect how, God, how much God loves you or how much he doesn't love you. Do you understand that, that the message of the cross has absolutely nothing to do with what we do for God? I mean, do you really believe that from this day to forward? Do you, do you understand that no matter what you do from this moment until you die, no matter what you do, no matter what you don't do, that it will not change the way that God feels about you. It will not make him love you anymore. It will not make you, him love you any less than he does right now in this moment. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Because if you do, it changes everything. And if you don't, nothing else matters. You know, in speaking about this whole business of the cross and what Christ accomplished there, in Romans 5, Paul wrote this. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Which would be you, by the way, and me. He died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Long before you were born, long before God was ever on your radar, long before you made any kind of decision to honor God, no matter how great or how feeble, long before you would engage in the midst of your deepest darkness, in your darkest sin, in your most shameful moments, in your most regrettable days, Christ saw that, and he chose to die for you anyway. I mean, do you really believe, do you really believe that God loves you? I mean, really. I mean, why are you here this morning, right? Isn't it kind of weird that on Easter, uh, I mean, it's, it's ironic I'm wearing this, right? I'm dressed up. Why do we come to church? Why are you here? Is it here are you here because you feel like you, you have to be? Is it, is it maybe because of guilt, shame, feelings of obligation? You know, if you don't normally go to church, why come on Sunday? Why? I mean, do you really believe God loves you? I mean, do you know that? Do you know deep down, without a doubt, unashamedly, unquestionably, at the core of your being, that God loves you? Not in a theological, Sunday school answer sort of way, because we know theologically God has to love us, right? Not that he loves you like a brother loves a sister in the middle of a fight, because they have to, but they don't really like each other. But that God doesn't love the person, not that God loves the person next to you, not that God loves Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, not that God loves the church, the world, or humanity in some vague, disconnected way, but the truth that God loves you so much that he would rather die 
than be without you. Do you know that? Do you believe that? You know, it's so weird. I'll, just to be completely honest and get my dirty laundry out there. It's so weird being a pastor and, and coming up like on Easter Sunday, there's a lot of pressure, to be really honest. I don't know if other pastors feel this, but I feel this. You know, because you have all these people, they come, you have all these people that come to church for once, maybe two times a year they come, and they show up on Sunday, there's all these different expectations, there's all this pressure. I mean, up until I stood up on the stage, I mean, I'm so nervous, right? I mean, really, I get sick. If you were at Starting Point, we shared with the people who are at Starting Point that Sunday morning when we launched this church two months ago, I was in the kitchen, like, bent over the sink, uh, wanting to throw up because I was so nervous. And that's how it is every single week, to be honest with you. Why is that? Why, why do I get so nervous coming up to step, to step up and share about Jesus Christ? Is it because I'm afraid that I might be rejected? Am I afraid to fail? Is my value tied so much to my performance? Am I afraid of, of what you might think of me or that I might offend you? You know, what are you going to do, email me? You know, <laughs> you know, is that really that big a deal? Am I that afraid of failure? Am I afraid that that's really a reflection of whether I have value or whether I don't or how God really feels about me? That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I think, for me, oftentimes, the moment that I take my eyes off the cross, I start looking to myself. I start to feel either very, very worthy, as if God owes me something, or I think for me, and perhaps for most of us, I spend most of my life trying to earn God's love. You know, some of you have been trying to earn God's love for years, arrogantly comparing yourself to others when you get it right, or probably more often beating yourself into a bloody pulp in the moments when you get it wrong. Now let me ask you something. How's that working out for you, by the way? If you try to earn God's love, the Bible says that those of us who try to live up to the law to impress God uh, leads to death time and time again. Listen, religion is about what we do for God, but the story of the cross, Christianity, is all about what God did for us when we didn't deserve it, in our brokenness, in our shame, in our embarrassment, in our regret. Some of us participate in all types of religious activity. We're in life groups. We come to church every Sunday. We tithe. We do all these different things while at the same time projecting onto Jesus our own self-hatred, assuming that he feels about us the way that we feel about us. Worshiping a God of human manufacturing, a God who does not exist. Listen, God will never love you because he has to love you. He never will. He loves you because he chooses to love you. He loves you because he can't help himself. Do you really believe, do you really believe, this morning, if you're completely honest with yourself, do you really believe that with all the wrong turds you've made in the past, the mistakes, the detours, the moments of sin, selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love, that God has used them all to bring you here this morning to this moment where the Bible says you are standing on holy ground. This moment, do you truly believe that God loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and the evening rain with caution, without caution, regret, boundary, limit, no matter what has gone down, that he can't stop. Loving you. Friends, this is the message of Easter. That for love of you, he died on Friday. That's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. Continuing in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. And he would be the first of many. In the days following, Jesus would reveal himself to his disciples and many, many others, proving that indeed he had risen in complete victory over sin and death. He appeared in public numerous times, taught crowds of people, showed himself to 500 people at one time, all of which bearing testimony to the authenticity and power of the gospel and the truth that is in Christ. There was no shortage of witnesses. You understand, when the church started, like they didn't have to say, hey, you know, you want to hear about Jesus, read the book. You know, believe. You know, try to believe. Do your best. They just said, hey, go talk to so-and-so. You don't believe us that Jesus raised from the dead? Go talk to him. Here's so-and-so. Just go meet with him. Oh, you don't believe them? Here's 500 more names. It's amazing. Jesus wasn't there in like this zen-like, you know, we kind of feel the the vibe of Jesus like he's still amongst us. You know, it wasn't some abstract thing. Acts 2.32, look, God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact Hundreds of men and women got to sit with Jesus, embrace him, eat with him, put their hands and fingers in his wounds, look him in the eyes. And there he finally gave his final words, his final address to those who would follow in his footsteps. And then he unleashed this group of nobodies, blue-collared men and women, fishermen and tax collectors on the world to bear witness to what had happened, to share the good news, to extend the forgiveness and love that is in Christ, leading people to him, planting churches, and the course of human history would never be the same. This is the story of what happened on Easter. But it's not just a story of what happened. It's a story of what is happening. It is not just a past event. It is a present reality. You see, there's this one detail in this passage of Scripture that has always kind of sat kind of weird with me. You know, we're talking about this meta-narrative, this incredible story that we're all a part of that has been continuing for thousands of years. But there's this one little detail that I read in verses 6 and 7. And it says this. It says, He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. I mean, isn't that just a weird little detail on such a macro story? You see, according to, uh, to really wrap our mind around how cool this is, how important this is, you've got to understand, according to one legend, according to Hebrew tradition, the folded napkin is had, said to have to do with the master-servant relationship. And if it's, if it's true, it's, it's something that every young Jewish boy would have understood. When the servant would set the dinner table for the master, Uh, He'd make sure everything was where it needed to be. He would set the table perfectly. He'd prepare the food exactly as the master wanted it. And then the master would sit down, and the servant would begin to wait on the master. He would refill his glass. He would replenish his food, and he would sit there and wait. And until the master was done, he wouldn't dare clear that table. And if the master was finished, he would stand up. He would take that napkin he would wipe his fingers, his mouth, clean his beard, and then he'd wad it up and he'd throw it on the table. And that was the sign to the servant the master was done. But if the master stood up and he folded that napkin and he set it to the side of the plate 
the servant knew that it meant that the master was not finished. He was coming back. He was not done. As we read the Gospels and the final words of Jesus, we find this truth everywhere. It is this story. Jesus says in the end of of chapter uh, 28 of Matthew, he says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In John 16, he speaks of how I must go now so I can send you my spirit so that I can come back so my spirit can fall on the church so that my love and grace and healing and power and freedom can fall on those who place their faith and trust in me. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm not finished yet. I'm not done. I'm just getting started. It's not over. This is just the beginning. What God was preparing to do on Easter through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what God was preparing to do through him and his spirit was un- to be unleashed at Pentecost, and realized in countless lives of men and women from then until now, and he is not finished yet. On Easter, we celebrate the end. We do. We celebrate Jesus' words. It is finished. We celebrate the end of our slave, slavery to sin, to our bondage, for its rule over a life. We celebrate the end of our separation from God, but we also celebrate a new beginning, a new beginning of what God was preparing to do in the course of human history, a new beginning of what God was preparing to do in the lives of those who would place their faith and trust in him. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Jesus Christ is just getting started. You understand, Jesus Christ is just getting started in what he is beginning to do in this church. He's just beginning to get started in what he's going to continue to do in our city and our world. And if you will let him, he is just getting started in what he desires to do in and through your life. It was because of his great, ridiculous, unfathomable, endless, boundless love for you that he marched to the cross 2,000 years ago. It was because of his unrelenting, furious love for you that he went to the great giving tree. God loves you totally, completely, sufficiently, just as you are, and not as he should be, because no one in this room is as they should be. 1 Peter 2.24 says this. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so I'll ask you this one more time. Do you believe, do you really believe that God loves you? Is that isn't a reality in your life? Because that if it is, I believe it changes everything. It changes the way that we invest our time, the way that we spend our money, the way that we dream. It changes the way that we treat ourselves and love ourselves and treat other people. It changes the way that we live in every way. Do you believe that God loves us? Or or are you holding on to past regret, refusing to embrace God's love? How often do we do that, carrying around baggage from our past? Refusing to forgive ourselves, beating ourselves up over things done yesterday or other things done long, long ago. We listen to lies so subtly whispered in our ears, telling us that we are not lovable. That nothing we do will ever be good enough. That we will never beat our addiction because it's not what we do, it's who we are. That our past mistakes will rightfully haunt us forever. That our wounds 
can never heal. Are you refusing his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his healing this morning? Are you refusing to surrender control and to repent over those, those areas of your life that hold you back? Those dark areas that seem so shameful that you still pray to this day that nobody will find out about them. If that's you this morning, no more. No more. Because the story of Easter is that that is not the way God created us to live. And he died on the cross for those things. And so this morning, we want to do something a bit different. And I want to challenge you. Worship team, you can come on up here. We're going to do something unique this morning. I want to challenge you this morning to take a tangible, physical step of surrender. The last thing we want for you to do, the last thing I want for you to do, is to make some vague, ambiguous commitment to try harder, to do better, and to walk out of this place unmoved, unchanged, by the extravagant love of God. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. You may notice we have three doors on this stage. Three doors. These doors are symbolic of a personal, transformational encounter with Jesus Christ. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says this. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. One of these doors this morning has your name on it. Some of you have been carrying things along for so long that it's hard to tell where you end and your baggage begins. And it's time to give it up, to confess it, to surrender it, let God take it. Finally, allow God to come into that dark place and redeem it. That is the message of the cross. That is the message of Easter. That is why he died, to free you from sin. That For those of us who place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, has absolutely no power over our lives. So this morning, I want to challenge you. What I want you to do while the band is playing, while we enter into an experience, uh, ongoing worship together as a faith community, I want to challenge you to walk on up here. And we have, we have pens, we have markers in front of every one of these doors. And I want to challenge you to walk up, write it on the door, whatever that thing is for you, and leave it in your wake. Write it up, walk it down, and walk away. Leave it behind you. Don't carry it along with you any longer. This is a time for us. This is a discipline for us in confession and surrender. Stop beating yourself up over things that have no power over you. Stop carrying the baggage that you've been carrying for years, the junk in your life that holds you back. You've been trying to swim with an anchor around your ankle, with a monkey on your back. Let it go. That is the story of Easter. Don't believe the lies that you're unlovable, that God doesn't see the things that I've done, that you've done in the past, and that he doesn't love you in spite of all of them. God knew you were going to, in your deepest, darkest moments, choose to let him down time and time again, and he still chose to die on the cross for you. Don't believe those lies anymore, and don't walk out of this place with that baggage. That is the message of Easter. So this morning, at this time, when we come and worship together, I want to challenge you to walk on up, write it down, and walk away and leave it here. If you've never confessed your, your life to Jesus Christ and surrendered it over to him, this morning is your day. This morning is your day. In Romans 10.9, so that those confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord will be saved. For you, your prayer might be very simple, very simple, very easy. It might say, take my life. It might say, I am yours. 
might say, I surrender all. Take me and do with me what you will. The actual word, make it your own. The actual words are not important. What's important is what's going on here. Is it time for us to worship together? Leave it here. Don't walk out with it. Accept God's extravagant, ridiculous, endless, boundless, scandalous love for you. Let's worship.